Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sends and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley, and today we are doing something a little different. So for those of you who are Sticker Club members, love you, think y'all are the best forever and ever and always, you guys are going to be let in on the little secret treat that the Sticker Club members actually get to be a part of. So we do a couple different things in our sticker club. One, you get cool stickers from me and get little love letters. I like to send things. Two, you get the opportunity to win our stickerization challenge. What is that? I turn you into a sticker. You win some cool swag just for being a member of the sticker club, which is $5 a month. And third, and this is one of the cool things too, you receive special gifts from some of our past and future guests that are coming. So, but today what I want to do is introduce Rachel. She is the winner and our very first winner of our stickerization challenge. So excited. I'm going to shut up. I'm going to let you do your thing. Say hello to the world. Go for it. Um, well, thanks. I was very excited to win the stickerization challenge. Uh, $5 a month is a small price to pay for the cool stickers that Mario puts out with his guests. I've been climbing for about two years. And of course, that's how I met Mario. Did we meet at Plano or Dallas or was it? Um, we met at Plano. I'd seen you at Dallas, but we met because I thought... Well, it was through one of like the POC meetups yes, that I had yes, met yes, you. Yes, yes, yes. And then like because of the stuff that you said during there and like how you spoke about inclusion, I thought you would be a good person to reach out to for the keys club that my mom yes. has at her school. That is awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, that was honestly one of the highlights of I was super bummed that I couldn't do that there. So for you, for those of you guys who have no idea what we're talking about, I got the awesome opportunity to speak to a group of young ladies about why I like to coach, what a inspires me, what motivates me and my job. I think some of them thought it was great. I think uh, like normal teenagers, the rest of them just rolled their eyes at me, but I didn't really yeah. care. It was super red. Is that still going on? Yeah. So I don't, they're not doing meetups this year, but she's still running the club and hopefully maybe next year they can get back into it because I think it was like a really good, I mean, it's a really good organization because it helps, you know, at risk. It's basically girls who would be the first in their family to graduate college. So if you bring in speakers like you and some of the others they had, like librarians, people from charities, it just gets them like more excited and more interested in things that they could be doing if they go to college and after and just organizations that are like willing to help them succeed. That's awesome. That's awesome. I was super excited to be a part of it and I'm looking forward to continually doing it in the future. I'll be there as long as you guys will have me. <laughs> so I am super excited to announce the the guest is Miss Nina Williams. And I think it's only appropriate that this badass woman is here to bring in that badass woman. So let's just get into it. But um, you mind telling us who you are, where you're from and what is your relation to the world of rock climbing? 
Yeah, of course. And thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm really looking forward to this awesome conversation. So my name is Nina Williams, and I'm a professional climber based in Boulder, Colorado. I'm originally from the East Coast, from Rhode Island, but I moved to Colorado in 2010 to pursue climbing. And for the past 10 years, it's pretty much been my life. I've um, grew up competing, but then I got more into outdoor climbing and really split my time between the two for a while. But uh, the past few years, I've been traveling the country and the world, just bouldering and sport climbing, track climbing, just trying to do a little bit of everything. Now, you predominantly boulder, and I don't think people uh, know as much about your track climbing and sport climbing uh, accomplishments. accomplishments. Is there anything that you've actually done in a little while that you've actually really been excited about? Um, in the past few years, I think the proudest trad accomplishment I've done is uh, climbing Father Time, which is a big wall in Yosemite, um, graded 13B, um, but it's about it's about 22 pitches or so. Uh, and my partner, Katie Lambert, and I spent about six days on the wall um, getting to know each other really well, but trying hard and uh, yeah, just climbing up the thing. So what is that experience like for you? Because I mean, I don't imagine it's very much different from from men and women, but like was there any particular moment on the wall where you just realized like uh, you guys just bonded ever more so than anything else? I know for me, like my climbing partner, Will Brock and I, for us, we, we were working on a route called uh, the Velvet Tongue and uh, Black Velvet Canyon. And there was a point where we were just like having problems at this crux and we were just falling. And I remember we came down to the anchors and we both were talking about like, he was like, bro, you suck so climbing. And I was like, dude, you get up there and do it. And the same thing happened to him. And I'm like, and then we're both like laughing and joking about how we're terrible at rock climbing, but we were just like in this moment of like such good bonding. And I think for us, you know, just being able to joke around, was there anything at any moment like that? There were definitely a few moments. I think Katie and I were really similar in a lot of ways. We're both only children. We both have a lot of independence and uh, we both have our own ways of climbing. Um, she's one of the few climbers I've, I've been with that's actually shorter than I am. So watching her figure out her own beta and then me have my own beta as well. Like it was, it was cool to, to see that process for her and to encourage her in a way that wasn't me giving her beta. It was just being there for her and, um, and her being there for me and, and us supporting each other without telling each other what to do. If that makes sense. Um, and there were lots of moments when it was just really quiet and we were sitting on the wall together, not really saying anything, but just being with each other in those moments. Um, it was, yeah, it was really nice. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's like, I think if you've never had the chance to be on a big wall or at least a long route, someone like an all dayer, it's definitely, it's definitely a bonding. I would say this, it's a bonding or breaking experience. So um, I would like to kind of jump to a question that I have for you. And it's something that's kind of going around like wildfire on the internet. And I think a lot of people know what it is, but I think a lot of people don't know what it is. And I recently saw you post the, uh, I accept challenge accepted, but you didn't post yourself you posted Brianna Taylor. And so could you just like me being a guy having no idea what this actually is about? Um, can you kind of tell me what that is about and then why did you decide to post her instead of yourself? Yeah. So, uh, I saw the challenge going around and I initially saw it and felt this reaction of resistance. I have, um, maybe a, a streak in me that sees some sort of trend and is like, Oh, I want to do the opposite. 
But um, I went to an all girls high school and I have um, some close girlfriends and I saw this trend going around and I thought, oh, well, you know, it, it, it's kind of silly, but it seems like something that doesn't really have any harm. So why not? So I actually did post a photo of myself initially and tagged some of my high school girlfriends. But, um, but then I saw, um, I follow uh, this girl, Juliet. Amanda on Instagram, um, who's another friend of mine. And, and she had, she was the inspiration for posting the Brianna Taylor photo because she brought up the point, you know, the, this trend doesn't really have any action behind it. Um, it's sort of like posting the black square on blackout Tuesday and, you know, people, it makes people feel good about themselves, but there's no follow-up. And I was like that, you know, that was really hit the nail on the head as far as what I kind of had an issue with the challenge. It's like, Oh yeah, it's, it feels good, but it doesn't actually do anything. And so I sort of re relearned that perspective from Juliet. And I was like, you know what? This is a really good point. There's something else to be done here. Um, so I took my photo down and I was like, this is a time when, you know, Brianna Taylor isn't, you know, her, her momentum is slowing down a little bit. And so this is an amazing opportunity to bring more attention to that. Um, so I, found some more information as far as contact and an action to put behind that photo and yeah, just decided to amplify that a bit. Yeah. Um, that kind of segues into my reason for traveling to Denver this weekend really was to amplify black and brown voices. One of the big things that came across my mind that I learned here is everyone's experience is so different. As long as you've been climbing, um, you, I'm sure you see more black and brown people in the space now. What was your reaction when you finally started seeing other black and brown people? in the space? Well, when I first started noticing more black and brown people, I guess there wasn't a conscious thought of like, oh, you know, this person, I I haven't seen these type of people before. It, it, it wasn't like any real words, but there was some sort of switch of like, oh, like here's a black person climbing in the gym or here's like a few more brown people climbing in the corner. Like, cool. I haven't seen that before. Maybe that, and maybe that's it. I was just like, oh, I haven't seen it before. And now I have and sweet, like that's yeah, it. Everyone's so different. It's been a really interesting thing. Just like hearing different things. I'm very excited to hear your experience of that. And I'm actually super stoked to know that it wasn't a big deal because that's what it should be. And I think that it's hard for everyone to understand that everyone's experience is different. Right. Yeah. And I think something important to know, at least for my experience is I'm biracial. So I'm half Chinese and I'm half white and I'm white passing. Um, and when I was growing up, my, my mom has always been really involved in anti-racism workshops. And so I had always been hearing this type of dialogue from her growing up. So it wasn't, for me, it wasn't that unusual to start seeing more people of color in the community because I had grown up around that narrative with her. Like she had always emphasized the importance of, of not the importance, but just the awareness of racism in the world and how people would treat me differently to some degree, but not to the degree of darker skinned folks as well. So I was, I was aware of this, this position that I was in this position of privilege. Um, and I've become more aware of it in the past few years, but growing up, I, it's like, I appreciated and was aware of communities of color, even though I've always felt in between and kind of stuck in this, in this weird limbo because I have been afforded a lot of white privilege in being white passing. Um, but I've also been aware of the struggles that darker skinned people than me face. If that makes sense. 
But that's very interesting that your mom took the time and she was involved in these things. Cause I think most people's parents really, they tell you how to protect themselves. They don't tell you like really how to identify it and then also how to combat the situation. So that's actually really kudos. Thanks. Good job, mom. Yep. Thanks mom. <laughs> kind of bumping into more of an interpersonal thing. So, you know, Insta stalking you on your Instagram, which everyone Insta stalks. And if anybody listening to this doesn't think they do it, you're a liar. Uh, you recently did two boulders two days ago that you didn't think like you kind of passed off. I think something that you said was really powerful. Cause I say this to my kids all the time. I'm a full-time, I'm a full-time rock climbing coach. And so that's my main job coaching kids and adults, but mainly kids. And I tell my kids all the time, like the way you feel is valid. Like your feelings are 100% valid because if you accept them, you gain access to strength. You gain access to things that you don't even know. You kind of tell me about like what was going on through your head. I know you said it on your post, but it was, it was really beautiful. Yeah. So a couple of days ago, I sent um, a V11 called Hi-Fi and a V9 called Real Large. And these were a couple of climbs that I had tried on and off over the years. And for the past couple of years now, I've been in school. So I haven't been prioritizing climbing and I haven't been climbing as strong as I used to, or training is hard or, you know, just at the, I haven't felt at the top of my game. So I went up to Rocky Mountain National Park, which is where these climbs were, um, with pretty low expectations and, you know, feeling a little bit weak, a little bit, uh, heavy, you know, and just, but, but being okay with it because for the past year I've, I've, my body has changed. My priorities have changed and, but I'm really excited about what I'm doing in school and in life. So I went to the boulders and, these thoughts started creeping up of like, oh, you know, your fingers feel weak and you're not, you know, as strong as you used to be. So why even try hard? And instead of agreeing with those thoughts or being like, oh, like, yeah, I just, I shouldn't even try. Or it's, it's instead of getting really hard on, on my, on my own mentality, I thought, okay, well, I can't change the fact that I haven't been training super hard and I can't change the fact that yeah, these moves are a little bit reachy and felt reachy even when I did feel strong. So what can I change right now? You know, what do I have control over in this moment? And when you look at these holds, I have this tactic where I grab a hold and I close my eyes. So instead of looking at the hold, I let my fingers feel all the little grooves and creases so I can grab it really perfectly without actually looking at it. Cause sometimes our eyes can deceive us. Oh, absolutely. And we're like, this hold is way too small. But if you grab it and you really dig your fingers into it, it's like, Oh, there's the spot. So I did that with a lot of the holds and uh, I fo- I figured out beta and I just focused on grabbing the holds really well and breathing really well and also trying something different every single time. So for high five, it was, it's this really crimpy climb. That's the one where I found all the holds really perfectly. And then for real large, I just tried something different than I had before because all the beta I had tried before hadn't worked. And so for each of those moments, um, each of those tactics, it ended up working because I just focused on what I could control in the moment. And, and granted, you know, I, even though I haven't been training, I have been climbing for like 20 years. So I still have that reservoir of crimp strength. (laughs) So um, it's digging into a little bit of both, right? What we already have, what we've built up over time, but also what we have in that moment. Um, and I ended up sending both of them to my surprise. Congrats. Thank you. But, but looking back, you know, I got to the top of both of those climbs and I, I was happy, but I wasn't ecstatic. You know, I wasn't over the roof because I was already happy with myself before I had even gotten to those climbs. I was already satisfied with, with me as a person. Um, and you know, that, and that comes with some, some asterisks too, right? We all have these insecurities and things that are building up, but in general, 
uh, it helps for me to look at life from a very wide lens and at my climbing from a very wide lens and think, okay, you know, I've achieved a lot up to this moment and I'm not going to stress myself out over these little climbs. Um, cause I'm, I'm already psyched, you know, with where I'm at. So that's awesome. I think it's really hard for people to pull back and get the 30,000 foot view. I think as climbers, like we're just in the moment and we're always just kind of like, I don't know. I, I, I know I'm guilty of this and I predominantly climb trad, but I definitely want to on a route. Sometimes I'm like, I want to send now and I want to do this now. And I want to get over it. And even though as a coach, I'm like, it's okay if I don't send today, it's okay. Do I want to send or do I want to learn today? And I always tell myself I want to learn, but then I also realize I'm lying to myself sometimes just to be able to help myself slow down. So I really love that idea about closing your eyes on a hold. It makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that information imparts better into when you kind of get into a flow state, like you're able to pull on that a little bit better? Oh yeah, totally. Because I'm, once I get a really good feel for that hold, when I aim for it, I'm not, and again, this is kind of a weird, weird response to a weird question, Okay, but it's, I'm looking with my fingers, if that makes sense. That makes so much sense. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the thing. Like I'm aiming for the hold, but I know what it feels like with, I feel it with my fingers already. So I grab it and I know what to expect with my hand. Even if the hold looks really bad, it's like, well, I know what it feels like. So I'm going to trust my fingers over my eyes and I'm going to trust my body over my mind because that way I can be a little more intuitive and not overthink things. There is an amazing book. Uh, Have you ever read, read a book called With Winning in Mind? I have not. So Kyle Clinstales, uh, my boss, uh, also legendary coach of Team Texas. Mm-hmm, I have heard. Yep. He recommended a book to me and it fundamentally changed the way I climb. And one of the things that they talk about is focus on the process, never the goal. And uh, my little add on to that is with climbing is if you focus on the process of climbing, the sheer byproduct is a scent. Like it's just going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that's really, and there's a part where they talk about a golfer that they talk about and he kind of gets into this state where he's like swinging a club seven times. And then he talks about it. He doesn't even remember swinging the club anymore. Like it's just, it's not a thing. The club is just kind of driving itself. And I that, and what you said really reminded me of that thing. It's a really good read. It's a short read and uh, I highly recommend it. So if you yeah, ever I'll check it out. I was very surprised to know that. And I, I'm sure everyone else in the world knows this, but I didn't know you do coaching. Yeah. Thank you. So I have done performance and development coaching for the past year and a half. And I got my certification through uh, an academy called IPEC, which stands for the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching. It's a very long name, but um, I was inspired by uh, Sonny McCandless, um, Alex Honnold's fiance. And she recommended this program when I was at a point in my life when I felt really lost and didn't quite know where to go. This was back in, in 2017 where I, excuse me, where I stopped competing and I was climbing outside a lot, but as much as I love climbing, I felt like something really lacked in my life. There was some sort of purpose uh, that I was missing and I didn't quite know where to go. And, and Sonny and I, you know, were hanging out one night and she was like, Oh, I've been doing this amazing program where it's, it's, you, you learn how to help other people realize their own potential and dig into their own mindset in something that's completely unrelated to climbing. But there's so many parallels between the lessons we learn in climbing and the lessons we learn in life. Amen. And um, recognizing this, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is, it just felt like my calling, just being able to talk to people and let them figure out what they already know inside because the one of the number one rules of coaching is it's not advice giving you know you trust that the client 
already knows the answers to their own problems. But the trick is to ask them enough questions and to help them step outside of themselves into this third person perspective and see themselves from outside of their own box and see their own strength and their own abilities and be able to be like, oh, okay, this is what I have to do to help myself. And that's that's something I've seen in climbing. Like when I've done um, these taller boulders, these highball boulders, when I enter this state of fear where if you start getting really high up, or even like in sport climbing or tried, you know, your body starts to tremble and you start second guessing yourself and you're like, I'm not strong enough. I don't know the beta. I can't do this. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. This sense of not being enough in one way or another comes up. And in climbing, I've been able to separate myself and see myself from what I call an observer position. And it's this very non-judgmental voice that goes in my head. That's like, okay, your heart's beating really fast and your breathing is really short and your legs shaking and you don't know where to go next. And that's okay. So what can you do in this moment to calm yourself and to make a decision? Because we also tend to freeze, right? We're like, I don't know what to do. So it's like, okay, I can either, I can either, let go and fall, which is fine. Or I can make that next move, which is also fine. Like it's neither here nor there, neither good nor bad. But the important thing is to make that decision. And in climbing, that's when that trust in in the inner ability comes in. It's like, okay, I know that I'm strong. I know that I can at least make one more move. So that's what I'm, that's the choice I'm going to make. And that's the same mindset I apply to my coaching and my clients. It's like, okay, you are in this position of fear and and of not being enough but you have this experience you have this strength inside of you that you've built up your entire life so what is something you can do in this moment to push yourself forward to make a decision for yourself um but it's never me telling the client that right they always figure it out for themselves and that's the the best feeling of empowerment is just knowing that you have the intelligence and and the ability to to move yourself most people don't realize that they can do what they want to do. They really just need someone helping you along. So since you've been coaching now, and this is my experience in coaching, have you noticed a change in your overall climbing ability? Um, yes and no, I would say. I've, I've noticed a change in my climbing since I've done the coaching program. Yes, since I've gone through all of that further education. I've been able to look at myself and, and sort of catch myself when I have those, those thoughts. So yes. And then since in coaching my clients, I haven't, I haven't like gained any deep insights yet, um, through coaching my clients, but it was most, mostly going through that program and applying those concepts to myself. Yeah. That helped Fair enough. Because as you said, you start catching yourself doing a lot more. I noticed the same conversations that I would be like having, especially in coaching kids is a little different too, because you know, at the same time, like they're little turds, you know, like, I don't want to do the boulder. I'm scared. I'm like, you can do the boulder. And I find myself, I start making the same excuses and I start giving myself the same answers. And I'm like, and then I imagine myself as a small, like, you know, 11 year old child just whining and I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, this is bad. I think for most people, when you finally move into the coaching world, your ability to quote unquote, try hard goes up because you know, you you unequivocally know the abilities there. You're telling other people to do it. And so you like can't not not tell yourself to do it. Right. And it's also this breakdown of what does trying hard mean? Oh yeah. You know, like we can always ask ourselves why, why, why? Like, why am I trying hard? What is it about trying hard that's actually motivating for me? Is it so when you say try hard, it's like, does it mean to aim for the hold a little bit better, to push with the right foot a bit better? Like it's this connection of mind and body that um 
that coaching has made me dig into a lot more. So yeah, for sure it helped. All right, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about a company that has supported me since day one, Beyond Clothing. They make clothing and systems designed for anywhere in the world. And I do mean anywhere in this beautiful globe that we live in. Their clothing is designed for men and women. And I encourage you to go to Beyond Clothing and check them out. Use the promo code ALWAYSREADY, save yourself a little bit of coin, and the rest of the proceeds definitely go out to helping this podcast. But I cannot tell you what makes their clothing so good. You have real people supporting you. Small business giving you an impeccable big business product. So take a moment to go to Beyond Clothing. They'll get you beyond any endeavor. Hey guys, Rachel again. Thanks for listening to this podcast and thanks to Mario for bringing all these incredible guests. In the spring, there is a photography clinic coming up. So if anyone wants to get in on that, just join the Texas Lady Crushers Facebook group and you'll see a post there. Haven't confirmed a date yet, but if you're comfortable using a camera and want to get better at taking some climbing action shots... Um, hit up that group or email info at texasladycrushers.com. Ladies and gentlemen, we have one more announcement to make. I'm so excited to tell you this. Tension Climbing is now an official sponsor of Sins and Suffers podcast. Okay, so these guys are great. They make the tension board, which I personally love. Love me climbing on some wooden holds. I want to save my skin for the rock. Next, I love their flashboard. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I go to work on my project, there's not always a good warm up. So having a tool in your arsenal that allows you to warm those fingers up so you can pull real, 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 real hard is so important. So if you guys get a moment, go to tensionclimbing.com, check them out on Instagram and show them some love and write in the notes that you heard about them on Sends and Suffers podcast. All right, let's get back to the show. I was to answer that question for trying hard for me is to actually let go. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's a big pleasure. And it's a privilege to coach people. And don't think most people realize how much coaches get out of coaching. Oh yeah. It's, it's really, it's so fulfilling to see other people achieve their potential, but it's inspiring. Cause it's like, Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Like I'm, I'm, you know, that same sort of person. And as human beings, we always limit ourselves and we always have the fear and insecurity of life. But the minute you accept that, you know, it's those things aren't going away. So we might as well get familiar with them and remind ourselves, you know, this is okay. This is the thoughts that are going through my head right now. And that's okay. Did you climb when you were growing up in Rhode Island? Yes. So I started climbing when I was 12 years old. Um, I joined a climbing team when I was 13. When did climbing become serious and when did climbing become a job? Ooh, that's a good question. Climbing became serious. Well, climbing became very serious for me when I started competing when I was around 13 or 14. And um, I had a life-changing experience around then. I I wrote an article about it in Recognized a few years ago, but long story short, I um, got really in my head. I had a lot of ego-based fears when I was younger. Um, I was one of two girls on my climbing team and the rest were boys um, and my coaches were men. And, um, but I, I just put a lot of pressure on myself. I was like, I want to be one of the boys. I want to be better than the boys. And I wanted all of this external validation. I wanted people to think that I was a good climber because I didn't, I was focusing less on my own abilities and more on what other people thought of me. So I was in competition. I had a chance to go to my first youth nationals. And so I was at a regional competition and this was back when, 
um, you know, the, the format was you would climb for three hours and you'd have judges sign your, your scorecards, but it was kind of a free for all. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I ended up cheating. So I went into the bathroom and signed off on climbs that I didn't do. And I made it to nationals, made it quote unquote, um, went to nationals, didn't get caught, uh, didn't cheat at nationals because it was the onsite format. So I couldn't, but in my head, I was like, this is my crowning achievement of my climbing career. You know, everyone thinks I'm a good climber. I only did it that once. So it's not that big of a deal. But of course, a couple months later, that same feeling returned and I cheated like a few more times in competition and I eventually got caught and getting caught was the best thing that could have happened to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was made an example of, I you know was banned from all, from the next season coming up, uh, but I had to volunteer at all of the competitions. So I had, still had to be in the gym around people. Um, I had to write all these apology letters to my competitors and my coaches. And it was rough. I mean, it's, it, this was, I mean, over like not over, but close to 15 years ago now. And it's still like a little bit difficult to talk about, but I needed that, that kick in the butt to realize like, why am I doing this? Why am I cheating? Like, why am I, who am I climbing for? Is it for other people or is it for myself? Um, and you know, I thought about quitting and my mom asked me at one point, she was like, you know, do you want to, do you want to go back to climbing? And I was like, yeah, I love climbing. You know, it is truly at the core of my, um, of my being at the time, you know, I was like, I I love this sport and I want to continue. But so, yeah, that was probably when it was serious. And then a switch happened. I sort of I really buried that part of myself, that competitive side, because I was afraid of the type of person um, that competition made me be. And that really affected the rest of my competitive career, because, I mean, I would compete and I was a good competitor, but I was never, you know, I was never like Puccio. You know, I was never like winning, winning, winning all the time. And I would get I would still get really frustrated in competitions and I would get in my head and I was never quite able to unlock that in a competition format since that experience. I like that terminology. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I think because I, I really like put that part of myself away because I was ashamed and I was afraid of that person that I was, but since climbing outside and actually getting into coaching and being able to dig more into that side of me, I've unlocked it, but in a way that I've brought it out into the light and I've, I, and I've talked about it more and said, okay, this was me back then. And it's still a part of me, but it's okay. Like I don't, I would, I know I would never cheat again now, but I have, I can look at that fear and say that was this scared little girl who was just so worried about what other people thought of her. And that's okay too. You know, like the actions weren't okay, but I've changed a lot since then. And I've been able to examine it from a different perspective. (laughs) And, and my climbing has really changed and and gotten better since i've been able to accept that part of myself i don't think people think how much like fear a powerful force in your life you are the person who's been holding yourself you are the person that's been really holding you down but when you're in but when the echo chamber is firing in your own head like, that's just, that's as worse as it gets because no one else can hear that and you're dealing with it. yeah totally yeah it's intense um but then climbing became um to answer your second question climbing became professional for me, uh, when I moved out to Colorado and that was in 2010. Let's see, I, I went to college for about three semesters at university of Rhode Island. And then I dropped out because all I wanted to do was climb. So I moved out, 
Um, and I worked three jobs at one point. I was working for Starbucks. I was working at a rec center and I was coaching the college team um, up in Greeley, Colorado. And I just kind of cobbled together enough money and was like, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to try and get some sponsors. And really the motivation for getting sponsors was to just to get free stuff because I was like, climbing gear is expensive. It's oh, yeah. <laughs> so expensive and I don't want to pay for that. So how can I get it for free? Oh, no, no. <laughs> um, That's a thing. Yeah, it's totally a thing. So one thing led to another. I just, I reached out to companies and was like, Hey, you know, I, here's my story. I focused on the narrative a lot. I was like, here's why I, I, here's why I love climbing. Here's why I want to continue climbing. And I recognized at that point that it wasn't just about climbing strong. It wasn't just about the grade. It was about the person that you were and the, the gift, not the gift, but the, the things that you could give back to the community all that from a very young age, I realized that was really important for, for an athlete to be. Cause it's, you know, at the end of the day, who cares about the grades that you climb? Like it's about what you're doing for the people around you. Um, so that was what I, um, encouraged for, for my sponsorship, uh, from the beginning. And you think that everybody just wants to people just to see people climbing strong, AKA what I like to call climbing porn, because that's really what it is. You're just watching that, but people can't relate to that. And it's like, I feel like I love that you actually wanted to really kind of share your story and touch in and really bring up, like, it's not about how hard you climb. It's really about relatability. And it's really about like reaching out and making sure your people see your story and see your narrative and where you're going. Uh, and I think most people, at least, I don't know, most young kids and even myself is the guilty, uh, kind of like coming up through this climbing scene. You just think you have to be strong to have a good story. And that's, and this is also on the premise, like your job, if your goal is to kind of become a professional climber to the extent where you can get free stuff and we can just keep rock climbing. You know, I definitely get it. I think everybody has at least blown their you know, tax return on all the climbing gear at least once. But point is, is it is sharing that story that's valuable and that's to you. And there is value in that story. And I think that's the thing that, and in my opinion, some brands are doing a really good job with it. And a lot of them are just kind of like still kind of stuck in the old way. Like if you don't climb V10, we're not going to look at you. Uh, so thank you for sharing. that. I think that's really important. What are you studying in school? I'm studying communication and leadership management. Oh, so that explains why this all kind of like intertwines and ties together. That's awesome. And so like, have, is there anything that you've studied that is I think really, really impact your coaching recently or any just in general? Um, I'm actually in a class right now about social movements, which is quite timely. And um, I mean, there's a ton of material I go on and on about, but the social movements class has been really interesting. Earlier in the summer, I took uh, a class on rhetorical thinking, just a lot of philosophy and that sort of wide lens perspective stuff. Um, and I, I mean, Pretty much everything in the curriculum of communication has been fascinating. Just the idea of learning how other people speak to each other, um, how they understand each other, and then how they understand themselves. So that's the full gamut of interpersonal communication, relationships, conflicts. I'm really into conflict communication as well, but just everyone communicates differently, but everyone has a very specific style. And so when you identify how that one person speaks in the way that they do, then you can switch your own communication style to have a productive conversation where both of you are getting your message across and you're able to convey what you want without, with there being minimal resistance and disagreement. Cause there'll always be a little bit of, you know, weird stuff, but same thing. If, if you accept it and you don't ignore it, you're just like, okay, you know, we're, 
we're getting into some defensiveness or, you know, we're get, getting into some waters where we disagree, but we can accept that in each other and move on. Um, that I've found really valuable in my coaching and just in my overall communication in general. So to kind of bounce into that class that you're in now, what are your thoughts based on everything that's basically everything like this whole social movement, it's kind of a wild ride. And so do you have any particular thoughts, opinions or, um, and I know this is kind of a broad thing. So like, so it's been really interesting looking at it from the point of view of a process. So going back to the civil rights movement, um, when a lot of legislation was passed to give this impression of equal rights. And I say an an impression because of course there's uh, racism still exists, obviously. Um, but what that did is I think it drove overt racism underground. So it made it socially unacceptable, obviously for the KKK to be out and about, and it made it socially unacceptable for people to use racist and discriminatory, heinous language to people of color. But it made it more subtle and it made it more ingrained in society. But because people could not address it publicly, um, it's as if it didn't exist. And so now I see this process happening again with the BLM movement um, where people are acknowledging racism and they're they're saying, oh, yes, it is in our society. It is in our language and our communication. But I'm really hoping that it doesn't drive that language underground again. I'm hoping that people still continue to talk about it and acknowledge it. And I don't want, I don't want the momentum to die down because something we've learned, I've learned in this class is social movements have uh, a cycle. So there's, there's the uprising, there's the momentum, there's the outrage, and then it reaches a point where it plateaus and then it starts to decline and people uh, get fatigued. They get overwhelmed with all the information they sign petitions, they march and they do things that support the movement. And then they're like, cool, that's it. Yeah. I've done my part and I can move on with life and I can get back to normal. You know, people just want to get back to normal life. But the thing is, what is, what is normal first of all? (laughs) And you know, what, what is normal for you? What did it mean before this movement? And what does it mean now? And how can we keep this momentum going in ourselves that doesn't burn out. It's like it, we, we went through this big flame. We went through the yeah. bonfire and now we're in the embers and we have to keep feeding these coals. And I understand that people, white people in particular, you know, I, I've had some conversations with white people and something that really stood out to me in a conversation I had was this one woman was like, why, why me? You know, she was kind of venting, but she was like, you know, I had my life before all of this happened and now there's all these changes and I don't want to make those changes because it affects my life in a way that I've never had to deal with before. And so why me, you know, how can I make this change? And she meant it again, this, she was venting and she meant it in this way where she was just trying to work out her feelings. But I think it reflects this broader impression that white people are like, Oh, I used to have this normal life and now I have to make room for this new normal. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, and it's hard and it's painful, but, and you, you're like, you can say, think of all of the pain that black indigenous and people of color have experienced for years and years and generations. Like you are now feeling this pain that everyone else has. And so how can you accept that? You know, how can you make that a part of yourself and lift up these communities to be where your normal used to be? Like, just please just try, you know, don't ignore it. Don't 
put it aside. Like, please don't forget about it. Don't act as if you've done your part and that's it. Like take on that pain and take on that weight and that labor for the sake of everyone else that has been so far behind for so long. Yeah. So it's like this, this plea, you know, to, and I, I'm for me personally, my style of communication, I, I don't want to, I don't want to guilt people. I don't want to like, you know, I, I just want to not, not beg even, I don't know if that's like the right word, but I always want to keep asking questions of my friends, of my family, of my community around me to be like, Hey, you know, so how's it going? You know, have, have you, what's going on in your life and in relation to the black lives matter movement and you know, how, how are you, how are you feeling? And I'm kind of rambling at this point, but no, no, no. I mean, that's what this is for. Yeah. It's like, how do you keep, it's just, how do you keep the momentum going? That's the ultimate question. And so for me, I just, I'm constantly asking myself too, because I'll be honest, like I have felt I've, again, as a biracial person, as someone who's white passing, I'm also in this position of like, I need to make this sustainable for me, for myself. Um, and that's the only way to keep the the momentum going for the people around me. Because if I get fatigued, if I get tired, that's it, you know, then I'm not going to be able to help the community around me. So I'm still asking myself, you know, how am I going to give back? How am I going to keep the conversation going for myself? Because that will create a ripple effect for the people around me. I definitely agree with that. Definitely wears people down. I was talking to my main climbing partner, Will, last night. One of the things that I really noticed in this conversation with him, because I myself was getting fatigued talking to him about the topic. And I think that's one thing that I know white people are hearing this and like, and I, I want to be very clear. There was an article posted on the Avera group and they do a lot of diversity training and different things like that. Posted a really cool article a while back and I'll make sure it's in the show notes, but it talks about there are certain kinds of people. There's the whistleblower, there's the healer, there is the person who's communicator, the debater, blah, 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 blah. There's all these types. And I definitely find myself as the person is healer and a debater. Because I just, I love conversations. That's why I started a podcast. So I think it's important that we keep on having these. These conversations are super fatiguing. That's the way they're supposed to be. Like, this is not supposed to be one of those things. Like, uh, the best way I can describe it is it's like you have that friend that you only ever see at the crag and they're super great. And when you talk to them, you have all these great moments. But then when they're gone, they're gone. And you don't have to think about it anymore. You can go back to whatever you quote unquote call normal. But this conversation, that we are trying to continually have, even though it is it needs to happen. And I think it's just hard for people to wrap their brains around that. Like, this is a conversation that you're still trying to have with yourself. This is a conversation that you're still trying to have with people. But the big point is, is like, we just have to keep talking about this because the point that I was bringing across with Will is like, you know, what we really want to be Ultimately, what black and brown people want to be is when the decisions are being made, we want to be one at the table Two, have a very, very, very heavily weighted vote at the table, more so than everybody else duly deserved. You know, you've had all these civil rights movements, you've had all this stuff, people pass laws and things like that. And then they're like, okay, we're good. Are you happy? Cool. Okay, cool. You, you quiet down now? Cool. You need a lollipop? It'll make you feel better? Okay, cool. That's how it's gone for so long. And, you know, as a as a black male identifying as black and male, he and him, um, his, we had to accept that. The reality is, is like, I am seen as a threat. I am seen as that in my life could be taken from me. And, you know, I want to touch on one other thing that you bring up is like, we can't let this go down under down underground anymore. We can't let these conversations go because I think anyone black and brown would agree with this statement. And if you don't, I would love to know why, uh, you and anyone listening, 
we would all rather a loud racist than a quiet prejudice because that person, someone who's quietly prejudiced, they are working against you in the shadows. That's the person that sees that you have potentially a black and brown name and they just move your application away. That's the person that sees that you're black and brown and they will talk to, and this has happened to me before, they will talk to my white friend at the register and he is ordering for both of us for a long time. That's just the way it is. And people have been able to get away with that behavior. We did anything there. The consequences could either be physical, socioeconomical, or emotional. And that's straight up terrorism, in my opinion. It really is. I mean, if you live in a constant state of like, okay, I'm constantly playing this chess game in my head and everyone in this room, even though they're super nice, like this person might know this person and this person doesn't like me and this person might do violence or anything like that. And I don't think people understand that. Like black and brown people walk into places and we're playing chess and we're trying to think five moves ahead. This is not going to get any better unless we keep talking about this. And there's a certain level of gaslighting that happens because if you're thinking to yourself, well, like, you know, if your white friend is ordering, ordering for you, for the both of you, and you're like, what, what's going on? And if you bring it up, you know, in that situation or any other, it's like, oh, what do you know? What are you talking about? That's not, yeah, they're They're not doing anything. You're, you're totally in your head about it. And then you're like, am I like, and then you start to doubt yourself, but yeah, it's like, we have to figure out our, and this is why I'm so passionate about communication. I, I really, truly believe that our ability to know our own style of communication ties in with our ability to lead. Like I, I have this, this other core value that I believe we're all leaders in our own lives. And something I really attach to in the social movements class that I'm in is that there's three leaders. There's three key leaders in a social movement. Um, There's the charismatic leader, the person that can stand in front of a crowd and hype people up and get the group excited. There's the bureaucratic leader, um, the person who gets into the details of, uh, you know, all the or sorry, not the bureaucratic, um, the pragmatic leader, the person that's, you know, able to get in with the paperwork and say, okay, this is what we need to get done in order to be successful. And then there's the profit. And the prophet is the person that is so tuned in with the core value of the movement. And they're like, okay, here's, you know, here's the right way to do it, you know, and anyone else is on the wrong way. Like it seems very binary, but they're the ones that stay really true to the the core. And so you need all three of those leaders to keep the momentum going. And if you think about it in terms of your own life, if we are all leaders in our own lives, it's like, which leader do we want to be? Which leader can we identify with? Um, and, you know, you can, you can add your own style of leader too, but those three are the core to keep that momentum going. And so for me, I, I mostly identify with the charismatic leader and maybe a little bit of the prophet too, but, you know, just being able to recognize those aspects and say, okay, every single day, what am I going to dig into uh, to speak to other people about the movement, about what I'm really passionate about and to keep the conversation going? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely and wholeheartedly agree with. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're kind of coming up on the end here and uh, you know, this podcast is called Sense and Suffers. Uh, and so I generally like to ask two questions right around the end. Uh, is there any particular climb adventure or anything that's coming up that you're looking forward to? Well, given the current pandemic and the travel stuff. I uh, have been sticking close to home and honestly, my suffer fest right now is school. And I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm finishing my undergrad. It's not like I'm getting my doctorate or med school or anything, but for me, um, going back to school has been a huge hurdle for me because for so long I told myself that I was not smart enough to finish, um, higher education. 
<laughs> well, I was, I've never been a good student. I've never been too motivated in school specifically, but going through that coaching program and recognizing the fears that I had in life unrelated to climbing, I was like, you know what? I've always told myself that I wasn't smart enough for school and I'm going to prove myself wrong. So um, I'm in a really intensive summer semester that I'm just finishing up and I've got a couple more semesters. If everything goes to plan, I'll be graduating in the spring. And so once I'm, you know, that's my, uh, that's kind of my current suffer fest that I'm okay. in. Well, that's, that's legit. <laughs> but then after that, after the spring, uh, hopefully and as if everything is okay to travel, um, I'm really psyched to get back on the road and, uh, head out back out maybe to South Africa or China. I've never been, um, I've never been to China before. So I'm, I've got these very wide angle plans, uh, more for next year, hopefully. Oh, is there anything are you considering dabbling in anything else? Are we kind of still sticking to, you know, big, big, bold, high ball, scary boulders, or is there, are you psyched on anything else? Any kind of particular style of climbing? Um, you know, I would really like to dig more into big wall climbing. Um, I know I've, I've done high balls and I love high balls, but going through the process of doing say too big to flail for real rock and having that story out in the world and having it out in the public, um, you know, that it, it was a very personal thing for me and highballing remains something that uh, it's very intimate. And I have some things I'm working through right now about the idea of doing a highball um, and having it be filmed and having it out there. It's like I don't really want to encourage highballing in the sense that it should be for yourself and not for anyone else. And so this is me digging into my 14 year old's you know, a little girl who's cheating in those competitions, who's climbing for other people. And so I, for me, I wouldn't want to go out and do a highball for my career. I wouldn't want to go out and do a highball for, yeah, for, for just to do a highball. Like I sort of let the highballs come to me. If I see it or if I hear about it, if I see a cool picture, I'm like, oh, sick. Like I would totally go out and try that, but I'm not seeking them out intentionally because then the motivations get a little blurred for me. And I recognize that. Um, but I also, I just love try climbing. Like I love going out, getting scared and, you know, being in a dangerous situation, but not as dangerous as a highball usually. <laughs> um, so I want to go ahead and say for all people listening to this, this is Nina Williams just admitted that she loves trad climbing. So any <laughs> trad climber out there, start doing your work, start catching up. Uh, I personally, I love plugging gear. That's my favorite thing. Yep. Have you climbed, have you plugged gear in Unuit Canyon yet? No, I haven't. I've oh, you should, heard uh, good things. Uh, but you should do a route called Denotement. Okay. So with wrapping it up here, if people want to find you. Yeah. So my biggest platform is probably Instagram. Um, you can find me at Shenanigans. That's S-H-E-N-E-E-N-A-G-I-N-S. And uh, I mean, feel free to email me. Um, my email is in the Instagram bio on the message button. And yeah, I'm an open door. Drop that. Uh, yeah.